welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. For over 90 years, the United States has been occupying the nation of Afghanistan and waging war against its people. On October 7, 2001, the United States invaded Afghanistan, claiming it was a war on terror. This took place just a few weeks after the horrendous September 11th attacks across the East Coast in which thousands of innocent people were killed. George W. Bush launched a military offensive against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Not only did this offensive kill innocent Afghans, including women and children, it has also festered into becoming an almost two-decade-long occupation and war. The United States, the most powerful country militarily on the planet, has been bombing, droning, and occupying Afghanistan, one of the most impoverished nations on the planet. Thousands of Afghan civilians have been killed and injured. Furthermore, since the start of the war in 2001 through mid-2019, nearly 2,400 U.S. service members have died, this according to the Washington Post. The total military expenditure in Afghanistan from October 2001 until September 2019 was a whopping $778 billion, according to the U.S. Department of Defense. Now, this is enough money to feed, clothe, house, and educate all poor and low-wealth people in the United States, who are well over 140 million strong and growing, by the way. Many veterans are also facing PTSD and other serious medical conditions while receiving little or no help at all from Washington, D.C. The war in Afghanistan has been brutal for people, in particular those in Afghanistan, but also people in the United States. Today, we bring you audio from a recent webinar entitled Ending the War on Afghanistan. The webinar was hosted by World Beyond War, RootsAction.org, New York City Veterans for Peace, and Middle East Crisis Response. It was moderated by Anne Wright and features presentations by Kathy Kelly, Matthew Hull, Rory Fanning, Denny Jerson, and Arash Azizada. Kathy Kelly has been a founder of Voices in the Wilderness, coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, and member of World Beyond Wars Advisory Board. Matthew Hope has been a senior fellow with the Center for International Policy since 2010. Rory Fanning went through two deployments to Afghanistan with the 2nd Army Ranger Battalion and became one of the first U.S. Army Rangers to resist the Iraq War and the Global War on Terror. Danny Jerson is a retired U.S. Army officer, contributing editor at Antiwar.com, senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and director of the Eisenhower Media Network. Arash Azizada is a filmmaker, journalist, and community organizer currently living in Washington, D.C. We live in a global world 
we're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. President Trump issued another round of pardons and commutations Wednesday as his presidency starts to wrap up. He gave 26 pardons or commutations to his political allies, friends, and associates. Those include his former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, his son-in-law's father, Charles Kushner, and longtime associate Roger Stone, who was convicted in special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. Many of Trump's pardons announced over the last couple of days have been for associates like Manafort and Stone, who were convicted in the probe into the Trump campaign's Russia ties. The moves have drawn criticism. California Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff tweeted that Trump was, quote, lawless until the bitter end. The list also included people whose pleas for forgiveness have been promoted by those supporting the president throughout his term in office, including conservative media personalities and corrupt former Republican lawmakers. President Trump has vetoed the annual defense policy bill. The veto follows through on threats Trump made to veto a measure that has broad bipartisan support in Congress and potentially sets up the first override vote of his presidency. Trump has offered a series of rationales for vetoing the bill, including a demand for lawmakers to include limits on social media companies he claimed are biased against him. He also opposes a part of the bill that seeks to rename military bases named for Confederate leaders. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called Trump's action, quote, an act of staggering recklessness. A Republican ally of the president, Senator Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma, said America's troops, quote, shouldn't be denied what they need ever. Canada's regulators approved Moderna's coronavirus vaccine on Wednesday, a move that will make it easier to inoculate people in the country's remote and northern regions. Health Canada, which conducted a full review process but on an accelerated schedule, said that the vaccine can be used only on patients 18 and older until further testing on children is completed and analyzed. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said the vaccine is good news but people will still have to take precautions over the next few months to keep the virus under control. It's up to us to protect each other. It's up to us to pull together, to hold on, and to know, however dark the winter may be, spring is coming. Better days. The Canadian government had previously decided that the extremely low temperature shipping and storage requirements of the vaccine developed by Pfizer and BioNTech, which is currently being dispensed, made it impractical for use in the country's vast but sparsely populated far north. Officials said earlier that the initial doses of the Moderna vaccine would be reserved for that region. Negotiators from the European Union and Britain say they're close to a trade deal that should avert a chaotic economic break between the two sides next week. Trade will change regardless come January 1st when the UK leaves the bloc's single market and customs union. Fishing rights has been the final wrinkle in the talks to iron out. FSN's Ollie Barrett reports from London. 
Talks continued overnight in Brussels, but both sides expect an agreement can be sealed on Thursday. The trade deal would come into force after the Brexit transition period ends on December the 31st. Final conclusion has been held up by discussion over fishing rights. Former civil servant in the UK's Brexit department, Philip Rycroft, says it hasn't been easy. Fisheries is complicated. There's a lot of different species that they have to sort out. But I think it has genuinely taken the time, the time has been required to get this sorted. There'll be a lot of relieved businesses. They're not going to face tariffs uh, in the new year. That's particularly true for uh, the automotive industry and for the farming industry. I'm Oli Barrett. Some domestic violence prevention groups are exploring alternatives to involving law enforcement in domestic violence incidents. The groups say in many cases calling the police can just make things worse. Suzanne Potter reports. A 2015 national hotline survey found 75% of survivors who called 911 said they regretted doing so. Colseria Henderson with the California Partnership to End Domestic Violence says perpetrators often are released after a few days and then seek revenge. Overwhelmingly, survivors felt that inviting law enforcement in either did not help their safety or actually made them less safe. Survivors also suffer financially when the authorities incarcerate or deport the family breadwinner. So advocates are looking at options beyond the criminal legal system. They might train community volunteers to intervene in domestic disputes or use a restorative justice model to engage survivors and their partners. For Public News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and those were our news headlines. Now, we kick off our Sojourner Truth special on ending the war in Afghanistan. During the first half of the hour, you will hear presentations by Kathy Kelly and Matthew Hull. Kathy Kelly has been a founder of Voices in the Wilderness, coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, and member of World Beyond Wars Advisory Board. Matthew Hull has been a senior fellow with the Center for International Policy since 2010. Let's hear from them now. In preparation, I also, um, I feel as though I befriended, although I've never met a professor who um, was born in Afghanistan. He spent uh, four decades teaching at the Lewis and Clark College in Portland. But during those decades, um, Dr. Zahar Wahab felt that he should go back to his country. And so he went back many, many times. Every year he'd go and he'd contribute after 2001 to building an education department. But then for six years, the most recent six years, he lived in Kabul. He taught at the American University in Kabul. But then in October of last year, he and his wife just he said it was like he was on lockdown long before COVID hit because you couldn't leave the university unless you were in an armored car. Life was so confining. And I have, I guess I've actually been to Afghanistan about 30 times. And in the more recent visits, I also, no, Anne, that wasn't your fault. That's exactly what I sent you. I forgot to update it. Um, but, uh, you know, we certainly have had that experience of getting there, going to the peace center with the Afghan peace volunteers and then not leaving till we go to the airport. Whereas before it was, there was much more freedom. Kabul is increasingly an unlivable city. Now, why is the United States responsible massively for havoc and unlivable conditions in Afghanistan? What has war bought? And 
I think what Zahar Wahab wanted us to understand is that what the United States has injected and developed within Afghanistan is a series of interacting realities, the warlords, certainly. Now, when we think about warlords, there are at least 18 insurgent groups. There are the Taliban, and then the most well-heeled and the most menacing of all the warlords is the United States. Recall, please, with me, the massive ordnance air blast bomb that Trump used. We don't even know why. It should have been labeled a war crime, but the United States warlords are so powerful Nobody can go after the United States very easily, even though war crimes have been committed by CIA death squad, trained death squads, by special operations forces, by the 7,000 bombings just this year that hit civilians. Again, and again, the, the drone warfare, think about the pine nut harvesters in Nangarhar near Jalalabad, who in a, a little over a year ago, they were just trying to harvest the pine nuts. And a drone operator fired a missile right into their midst and killed 32 and 40 were severely injured. And what kind of health care could people get out in the remote provinces? So the, the, the warlordism includes warlords who become very powerful, even so powerful they can make their own prison systems. They have enormous access to resources because they figured out how more or less to gain the system and get the United States working for them in many cases. And uh, these warlords have had some of them horrible reputations for having done terribly frightening and devastating things. And the Ashokhani's government has incorporated the warlords into the government because that's the only way they can survive. Now, along with all the warlords, you also have mafias. Now, that's a tough word to use. And mafia designates people who get control over resources and they use threat and force to maintain that control. There are the mafias over land, mafias for minerals, mafias for foreign aid, mafias who gain control over access. There are um, many, many different mafiosos, if you will, who have tremendous power and help to make Afghanistan an unlivable place. Then you've got um, 18 other insurgent groups, armed opposition, United States forces, NATO forces, CIA terrain death squads, and people are trapped. They're caught in between all of these different warring groups, and the majority of the people in Afghanistan, the women and children, are often not only caught, they're stuck. Sometimes the men can run. They can hide. But the women and children often have nowhere to go and nowhere to hide, and now increasingly no food to eat. The food insecurity all across Afghanistan has shot up in alarming ways. What kinds of jobs are available? Jobs with the Afghan local police, with the Afghan National Security Defense Forces, jobs with uh, some kind of work connected to NATO forces or U.S. forces, jobs that involve picking up guns, risking your life, killing other people. The country has become devastated by all of these years of war. And how will they ever rehabilitate the agricultural industry when on top of all this, there's the drug industry, the drug industry that now 
involves uh, seven to eight billion dollars this year, but that translates on the international scene to maybe 80 billion dollars. And um, the, uh, the the opium industry is uh, thriving in Afghanistan today. Then you have um, somebody like Akhtar, who says, we have lost so much and gained nothing at all. Well, Jen Stoltenberg of NATO was quoted in mainstream media in the United States yesterday saying, oh, no, 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 don't make a hasty withdrawal. We, amongst NATO countries, have invested too much to accept a hasty withdrawal. But, you know, let's think a little bit. What do Canada, Finland, Poland, uh, New Zealand, Australia, with this sordid, terrible news that's just come out, um, what do those countries, Jordan, for instance, really have invested? What's their purpose in being so invested in Afghanistan? What do they want? Do they want to protect the Afghan people all that badly? Or does it turn out that when you become part of one of these forces in another country, well, you have to have people who provide food and weapons and transportation and uh, housing. And, And you get a lot of different corporations who become part of that investment. And then if you hastily start to take it down, you're going to have some corporate profiteers pretty angry at you because that's who mainly benefits from the war, the war profiteers. And the carnage can be very profitable. And so we heard Jen Stoltenberg in 2014 say, oh, no, 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 don't leave. We have to protect the women and children. NATO is there to protect the women and children. Well, have the women and the children who are hungry and cold and displaced and widowed and bereaved and orphaned. Have they been helped? How much does Jen Stoltenberg care? How much do the U.S. generals care about people in Afghanistan? And if they care so much, then let them immediately put a lot of work into demining and cleaning up the bombs and the weapons that have been dropped all over that country. If they care so much, let them figure out right now how to start up a multilateral trust fund, a multi-nation trust fund. And with all the billions that have been spent on the futile and the cruel war, put equivalent billions into a trust fund to rebuild Afghanistan and make sure that that trust fund is never entrusted to the NATO forces or the U.S. forces who have so badly misspent the resources so far. Do you know John Sopko, the head of the Special Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, back when the Afghanistan papers were the big deal in the Washington Post and the New York Times is the breaking news. John Sopko said never had he ever expected to be so astounded by the hubris, the mendacity, the distortion, and the lies that characterized his experience of the United States military and civilians in Afghanistan, as well as Afghan civilians and military working with the United States. His reports are filed quadrennially, four times a year. Any congressperson, any senator could read them. Our president who, by the way, told John Bolton that he thought Hamid Karzai was the president 
for the last five years of Afghanistan. He didn't even know who the president was. He didn't know Ashraf Hani has been the president for the last five years. I highly doubt, highly doubt President Trump cares about people in Afghanistan. He doesn't care. But he wants an electioneering of a political plus to uh, fall in his lap. But anyway, when he saw even just a portion, a tiny portion of one of the cigar reports, he said it should be locked up. Don't let anybody see that stuff. It'll be embarrassing for the United States. Embarrassing. We've wreaked havoc all across Afghanistan. We've made it unlivable. But let me close by saying there is one group that can travel in Afghanistan just about anywhere. And they never, ever have armored accompaniment. You know what they have on their vehicles? It looks like the euro symbol almost, but it's an E with a circle around it. And everybody knows that's the emergency surgical centers for victims of war vehicle. Don't attack it. They're never attacked. Why? I believe it's because they never ask any person who needs to be stitched up or operated on what's your religion or what's your ethnic background or what's your political persuasion. They treat people as human beings. They treat people fairly. They've offered something good and needed without trying to make a profit. And that's where you find security. And that's where the United States could find security. You know, the war on terror has actually occasioned more terrorist actions than ever every single year. But this professor that I'm so impressed with, Dr. Zahar Wahab, he actually, in a kindly way, said, sadly, in the United States, some of these mafias are gaining more control. Some of these groups that want to sell weapons and use weapons and can't be controlled by the government because they have so much power. He didn't name them, but I would name them. Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, General Electric, Boeing. So let's not let the warlords have the upper hand any longer. We are responsible, but we can take a cue from the people at emergency and ask ourselves, how can we learn to live together without killing one another and begin by saying we refuse to kill and maim and brutalize and torture Afghans. And that we want to see the chapter turned, yes, to a peacekeeping presence, maybe even, it's hard for me as a pacifist persuasive person to say, maybe even a peacekeeping force, but not comprised of the NATO countries or Western countries. Let the UN design another kind of presence to help Afghanistan truly turn a corner and be rid of all the warlords, especially the United States. Thank you. I want to thank everyone. Thank everyone for joining. And and, and thank you to uh, Vets for Peace in New York City and World Beyond War uh, for putting us on, especially to uh, Greta Zaro, who is always behind the scenes at World Beyond War making all this happen. Um, tomorrow, as, as Ann spoke about earlier, tomorrow there'll be a hearing, one of, uh, I don't know how many we have had on Capitol Hill uh, about the war uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and it will once again repeat many of the same lies that sustain this war. 
Uh, I'm going to talk briefly about some of those lies, but I also want to set the stage for that with the members of Congress do not receive information on the war except from what the staff gives it to and from whatever cable news channels they happen to watch. So they know about the Afghan war based upon what Rachel Maddow is telling them or what Sean Hannity is telling them or what Tucker Carlson is telling them. And then when they have these hearings, these hearings that the, the, mem- the people who come in and testify in the hearings are hand selected by the staff director of the relevant committee by his people. So these are people that are very familiar with the establishment. They're always, almost always are supportive of whatever view the um, ranking members of that committee want to have told. So whatever evidence they want to have explained to them is the evidence they're going to get, you know, in terms of, in terms of the bias or, uh, you know, the, the, uh, what the uh, opinion will be. On top of that, within the congressional offices themselves, and I've heard this from multiple members of staff in congressional offices, about 70% of the time, members of Congress receive briefings on the wars, whichever war it is, take your pick, from Western Africa to Pakistan. We have more than 15 different wars going on right now that this country is involved in, where we have young people killing other people and being killed themselves. And in 70% of those cases where someone comes in and briefs the congression, the Congress member or, or their staff about those wars, they are being briefed by think tanks that are funded by the defense industry. So they're not even being briefed by the Pentagon or the CIA or the State Department. They're being briefed by organizations whose very survival, whose ability to pay their rent, depends upon donations from the weapons industry, as well as also, to donations directly from the U.S. government, because the Pentagon, the State Department, the CIA, et cetera, fund a lot of these think tanks. And so you'd see that tomorrow where, where, where two of the members, Dr. Uh, 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 Stephen Biddle and, and Dr. Seth Jones, um, who are both members of, of, of think tanks, both of those think, think tanks receive a good amount of uh, Defense Department dollars or State Department dollars, as well as substantial amounts of money from the weapons industry. So that's where, the, that's where members of Congress get their information from. And what gets repeated to them over and over again or the same lies, the same myths, the same narratives. One of the things you'll hear, and, and, and Arash did a really good job of this. Arash, you know, earlier kept saying the war began in the 70s. For the Afghans, this is a, a war of over four decades. It's absolutely, that is the case. Tomorrow in their hearing, you will only hear the war began on September 11th. You know, with casualty figures, you'll, you'll, you'll be told, well, you, you know, we've had more than a million service members go to Afghanistan. We've only had about 2,000 killed. That's not really that bad. The reality is, is that for Afghanistan, and you really can't divorce it from Iraq, but for Afghanistan, the number of Americans killed in Afghanistan is well over 10,000. When you add into private contractors to the soldiers killed, and then you add into the numbers killed by suicide, the number is well over 10,000. When you put that together with the Iraq war, because again, those two wars are very inseparable, the amount killed, Americans killed in these wars is more than 25,000. More than 20,000 have been wounded, which again, in Afghanistan, which again doesn't sound like a lot. But when you look at the total numbers of veterans 
of the Iraq and Afghan wars who have been uh, permanently disabled by traumatic brain injury. That's more, there's more than a half a million of them. And for PTSD, there's more than a half a million veterans from these wars who are disabled by PTSD. Some of that overlaps with the TBI veterans, some of it doesn't. And so for each of those, you have families that have been absolutely wrecked by these wars and for which it doesn't end and will never end. And of course, this pales in comparison to what the Afghans have gone through. The numbers for casualties on the Afghans are, are unknowable. And it goes back all the way to the 1970s. You know, before the, the Soviet Union enters the war in December of 79, almost 100,000 people have already been killed in the fighting in Afghanistan. In the earliest days of the U.S. Uh, invasion and occupation of, of Afghanistan, 2001-2002, if you look at the work done by Jonathan Steele, who's a British reporter, in his, books, uh, in his book, Ghosts of Afghanistan, which I recommend to everybody, he very clearly lays out that at least 100,000 Afghans were killed in the first months of the war in 2001-2002. I mean, so those are just two examples where right now, right there, you've got more than 200,000 dead Afghans just for a period of months. And that doesn't even include the massive fighting. You know, one of the problems with understanding how many Afghans have been killed or wounded is because so much of the fighting takes place in the rural communities, in the rural villages where people don't bring their dead and wounded to the government. Nobody is out there counting them. And I'm sure Danny and, and, and Rory uh, have opinions on this as well, too. But I would say that for every, every incident where we reported killing Afghans or Iraqis, for that matter, and it got picked up by the U.S. press and international press, there are at least five or six other incidents where it was never, never reported. No one ever counted it. So the, 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 what we've done to the Afghan people is horrid. And then, of course, the refugee situation, where I think re- Afghans are now the largest refugee group in the world again, because so many Syrians have gone back home. So, you know, these are things that you just do not hear talked about in their entirety. You hear these, these numbers that have no basis in reality or, or the, the, the body counts, as they're called, are all so suspect because they're so conservative or they've been approved by official bodies that are linked, of course, to the war. You know, and there are a whole bunch of other things uh, that I could get into in terms of the lies of it. What I would recommend, though, is, is, is for people to go and, and, and look back. It was almost a year ago, a year ago next month, the Washington Post came out with the Afghan papers, which is thousands of pages of including the three men who are testifying tomorrow. Even though their names were released, I guarantee you they have, ha- they have remarks in those Afghan papers. The Washington Post, from my understanding, is still trying to get uh, all the names released for the people who are, who are involved in those Afghan papers. Uh, but the, it's very clear, like all the other wars the United States has been in, you know, uh, just in the last 20 years, say, things that are happening in you know, Iraq, Libya, Syria, the wars across uh, Africa. I mean, you had the senior general, and it's something that hardly ever got reported on. You know, Nick Terse interviewed the senior uh, American general for special operations in Africa, and he said to Vice News that American troops were killed and wounded in Africa, and they managed to keep it quiet. They didn't. No one ever found out. 
So the lying is just all pervasive throughout American warfare. But again, go back and look at the Afghan papers. Go and look as, as, as Anne and Kathy brought up uh, the CIGAR, uh, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction Reports. And, and then, of course, look at the writings that, that, that David Swanson has done with World Beyond War, or, or Danny Surgeson or Rory Fanning have done. And, and then for me, you know, I, I've got a few pieces on uh, Counterpunch you can go and look at, including one from February 2018, where it's about 8,000 words, but it kind of goes point by point and all the different lies, you know, uh, uh, about these, this war that sustains it. So, you know, I, I'll leave it at that, you know, because you'll hear a lot about hard-won gains. You'll hear a lot about all the schools we built. We hear a lot about... Uh, the healthcare that we provided. Go back and look at it and then try and inform as best you can others about the reality of the war there. Because so many people are, 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 are treading along with this narrative uh, of the war, the myths of the war and the outright lies. And that's what it enables it to continue to go forward. But thank you all. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a quick station break. When we return... We will continue our special on ending the war in Afghanistan. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Sojourner Truth. You can check us out on our website, sotrueradio.org. If you're on Facebook, you can look for us and like us there. Uh, our handle on Instagram and Twitter, at SoTrueRadio. We're also on SoundCloud. You can go to the search bar and type in Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott to find us. Now, we return to our special on ending the war in Afghanistan. Um, before we do that, though, I do have to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners. And today, let's give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Valencia, uh, California. And internationally, let's give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Paris, France. And now we're going to return to our special on ending the war in Afghanistan. During the second half of the hour, you will hear from Rory Fanning, Danny Jerson, Rory Fanning went through two deployments to Afghanistan with the 2nd Army Ranger Battalion and became one of the first U.S. Army Rangers to resist the Iraq War and the Global War on Terror. Danny Jerson is a retired U.S. Army officer, contributing editor at Antiwar.com, senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and director of the Eisenhower Media Network. Let us hear from them now. So we've all kind of taken up different themes. And, and I think that that's one of the values of a panel. And for me tonight, I'm going to talk a little bit about transition. 
right? Transition moments. Uh, in this case, the transition to a Biden administration, the fourth administration to oversee uh, a war in its 20th year. And uh, I'm going to talk about bipartisan imperialism, right? And a movie I think we've seen before, this transition from a rather unsavory uh, Republican in many circles to a new Democratic administration. So starting off with my experience, I, I don't need to go into my full bio and background, but I will tell you that I was uh, a New Yorker um, from Staten Island, which is sort of the land of police and firefighters. And so 9-11 was, it hit home pretty hard. And, uh, and I was a freshman at West Point, a plebe, and I was very angry and uh, toxically masculine and 18, 18 years and one month old. And uh, I couldn't wait to get in the war. Man, I couldn't wait to engage, invade Afghanistan. In fact, my biggest fear was I'd miss it. The war would be over too fast. It'd be like the Persian Gulf War, 100 hours. So uh, that didn't happen. Uh, I didn't miss the Afghan war. And uh, interestingly, though, my first war wasn't Afghanistan. I went sort of out of order, just like most of the soldiers of my generation. And I ended up in Iraq, right? So we all understand uh, the obscenity of that. But the thing about this transition piece that does play to my personal story and then more is that I was in the Iraq surge and uh, it broke me. I mean, I, I really, I lost, I was against that war within a month and I fell for the notion that there was this new candidate. His name was Barack Obama and, uh, and he would make sure that no one else would go through another Iraq surge. In fact, he was the salvation. And I was on that train. Uh, I was on that train big time. And uh, I, when I was at Fort Knox, Kentucky, after the uh, Iraq surge and before I found my way to Afghanistan, I would throw on a hoodie on the weekends and canvas for him in southern Indiana. Well, all that hope was kind of pretty quickly deflated. Soon after that, I was on my second surge. Uh, instead of Baghdad, it was Kandahar. It was 2011, sort of the height, second half height of the Afghan surge. In fact, I was there in command of an outpost in Pashmul, about three miles vaguely in Kandahar from the village that Mullah Omar was from. We were on the Taliban's sort of home turf. And uh, a Reuters reporter was sent down by brigade to do a profile on me. I guess they were looking for a New Yorker you know, to ask how he felt about the 9-11 attacks. The ostensible explanation for 10 years of war seems quaint 10 years in our 20th year. Uh, even a cynical captain that I was then would not have expected to be having this conversation. The Reuters reporter uh, asked me what I thought about things, and I told him. I had very few apps left to give even then. Uh, and it angered my bosses. I had said things like, this has nothing to do with 9-11, that I don't see a connection, that the people I'm fighting and that are fighting me and that are dying in the crossfire, my own crimes, uh, they don't have anything to do with 9-11, that this isn't that. I said, how can you be all that angry with, you know, teenage farm boys? Um, and certainly I wasn't a fan of the doctrinaire Taliban, but well, that wasn't so popular with my bosses. What was popular 
was when the generals would all come down and visit the new Afghan local police that I started forming in my area. So I'd take them on little Potemkin patrols and let them pretend they were in combat. And, uh, and boy, did I get a lot of, a lot of gold stars for that. Now, nobody much liked the interview on, about 9-11 where I told the truth. So anyway, I'm not an expert on Afghanistan. I spent a year there, uh, basically under siege in a small outpost. You know, uh, I was an armed tourist, a, a voyeur, right, to a certain extent. Water carrier for empire for far too long. Uh, so I'm not an expert, but I, do, I did get enough of a window and a motivation to care and, and a motivation to study. What struck me about that transition, and it was kind of my second broken heart, the first one having been finding out that my life's work and identity was a lie in Iraq and again in Afghanistan. It was knowing that this, this urbane, this genteel, this better alternative to Bush, uh, it, was, it was his administration, right? It was his administration with a lot of the folks that are coming in with the Biden administration that pushed that second surge. That's who sent me on that surge. And uh, at first I was really angry, and I'll probably still never forgive or forget that. But at the same time, it was instructive. It was kind of a lesson and strategic. What was that lesson? Uh, I think it was that we have polite emperors and we have coarse emperors. And sometimes we have buffoonish emperors. But we get emperors. And... uh, you know, it was easy to be angry at first. You know, three of my soldiers in a troop of 82 had been killed. Uh, one committed suicide later who had been shot in the face and wounded and disfigured. Uh, 30 others were wounded and uh, with this one triple amputee in that group. You know, that's like 40% casualty rate. That's pretty high, right? That's, that's, that's pretty high. But you know what? Countless, countless Afghans. I say countless, not as hyperbole, but because we didn't count. And, and, and uh, the amount of airstrikes that I called. Um, I remember on one of our last days in Afghanistan, there was a a guy who'd been sniping at our towers. And finally we set up a little trap for him. And one of our snipers took this person's head off on the cameras of our base. And we watched and we cheered and we high-fived. And then we wondered who we'd become. I left Afghanistan shortly after that. Anyway, I thought to myself, never again, no salvation from the top, you know, no discreet party will save me or figure. And so I think this is a cautionary tale as we look at what's happening now. Uh, a warning and my own fear. And I think a fear for this republic, what's you know sort of left of that aspiration. And it's an Obama dormancy encore, as I've been calling it. Now, the people who are on this call, I think there's 290 people, right? It's a pretty darn good crowd. Uh, I think everyone on here speaks a lot. I'm used to speaking to eight people sometimes and I'm pleased, you know, that's a lot of folks. And, uh, but yet I I don't think the Obama dormancy that I'm describing, the dormancy of an anti-war movement, the dormancy of a movement for peace uh, applies to these folks. There was always, there were always folks active, but a lot of folks who had acted as though, look, I'm anti-war. They were really anti-Bush, weren't they? They were really anti-Bush and maybe they were anti-Iraq war. But when Obama said it was a good war in Afghanistan, well, they jumped right on board. And it became impolite. It wasn't done, as Orwell said about the media in his proposed preface to Animal Farm that didn't get published. He said, it's not that you're not allowed to say these things officially. It's just not done. It's a self-censorship. I'm seeing some bad signals on this already. And I'm going to talk about three headlines that tell me that. 
we have a status quo squad that's coming in to do the transition in the Biden administration. I don't think that Trump was really an anti-war candidate. I don't think he really believed in much of anything at all. So don't misunderstand me. There are some folks when I say this who think I have a secret MAGA hat in my bedroom. I don't. Mostly it's just New York sports teams. Uh, but who's coming in? Well, the archetype is a Clinton and Obama retread. These are architects and the complicit in the Afghan surge, in uh, the extension of drone warfare, Libya, Syria. We're not even going to get into all that, but that, that was their policy record. But who else are they? Well, the archetype, if you pull the black ball of a Biden transition team member on these issues out of the bag, the archetype was an Ivy League graduate who went to work on a congressional foreign relations staff, who then had a mid-level job in the Obama National Security Council, after which, uh, when a job in the Hillary Clinton administration didn't pan out because of, you know, Russia, uh, apparently, but when, you know, I'm being facetious, but when that didn't happen, then what did they do? Well, they did two things. They went to strategic consulting firms that some of them founded, at which point they bridged the Silicon Valley hipster with the Pentagon suit wearer, and did it profitably. And they went to work for CNAS and CSIS. And they have really wonderful names and excellent acronyms. But what we also know is that they are funded to the tune, the top 50 think tanks over the last five years of $1 billion. $1 billion. One of those think tanks, the Carnegie Endowment for Peace, Peace, was funded by 10 discrete, either U.S. military agencies or war profiteers. That's who they are. And I think we're going to be coming to a moment here where we're going to find out about folks. We're going to find out where their hearts are and where their heads are. This is going to become sort of a litmus test. And I hate that word, but there are rare times I think where we're going to find out where this movement's going and who's with us. I want to say something about not only the Biden transition, but the generals, you know, the generals have an enormous amount of influence on whether we stay or go in Afghanistan. Don't they? I think that's kind of fascinating. Uh, one of them, General uh, General Lute, said that uh, we didn't have the faintest idea what we were doing in Afghanistan. Afghan papers, Washington Post, a year ago. Uh, General Lute used to teach social sciences at West Point. You know who his prize student was that he gave the highest the highest plaudits to? You might have heard of him, uh, Mike Pompeo. Well, Kathy made a point about these generals. Do they really care? Well. I think she raised an excellent point by saying they were just the strongest warlords in the room and warlords who got to sleep soundly at night. They didn't have to worry about getting assassinated. They had more bodyguards than any mafia had in the group. So where are they now? Well, we know where those warlords are now. They're gun running for the defense industry and they're consulting governments on what to buy and sell. And they're at the think tanks that are the urbane sophisticates justifying the whole thing. And I think the point here is they don't care. They don't. Afghanistan, the sad reality, uh, has generally been a political football domestically. And it's not about Afghans. None of this is. None of these headlines. So what headlines am I talking about as I close out? Stars and Stripes a few weeks ago. Years after they fought in Afghanistan, troops watched their children deploy to the same war. Well, that's never happened before except maybe the Native American wars of genocide. That's interesting. That's kind of grotesque, isn't it? Wait for it, though. An American soldier is going to be killed who was born after 9-11. That's going to be pretty rough for the Republic. I don't know if you come back from that. Of course, a whole lot of Afghans have been killed. Countless, that word comes up again, who were born after 9-11. 
doesn't really make it into the conversation. The New Yorker today ran a headline from one of their experts on the Middle East, one of their top people who knows the region, right? Especially Lebanon, supposedly. And uh, her headline said something to the effect of a lame duck president prematurely uh, withdraws from Afghanistan in order to sabotage Biden. You know, I don't for a second think that Trump's doing much of this on principle, but uh, that's an interesting headline. It does stretch the language a bit when premature is applied to a 20-year war. That being said, I do agree with uh, with kind of the first comments tonight that there is a obligation of the United States to Afghanistan. I don't think it's a troop obligation, but I'll end on this point. You know, let's tell the truth about the Afghan war, that it was about vengeance geopolitics and hegemony before 9-11, before 9-11. When Brzezinski, the national security advisor, convinced Carter to start supporting what became sort of the Taliban um, before the Russians invaded so we could get them to invade. Look, this was never about democracy or women or minority rights. It's a zombie war. I wrote an article on the 47th Seagar Report that Kathy mentioned the other day. This is a strategic dead man walking. The only people who don't know that it's a strategic dead man walking yet are the future dead. They don't know this war is over because it continues. So it's time for heads and hearts on this. I think the head has to admit an inconvenient truth. The U.S. military was never a force for good in Afghanistan or the world. And the heart has to say that real care for victims involves two things, reparations both at home and abroad, for the various groups that have been victimized and an utter change of the paradigm and the posture of the U.S. foreign policy abroad. And I agree with Kathy. If we think that NATO armed voyeurs like myself are the solution, then man, that delusion runs deep. But, uh, but I'm glad to be here having this conversation. I'm sad we have to, but there's no better group to have it. And thanks so much. Thank you very much. And thank you to everybody on this panel. Um, like Danny says, said it's truly an honor uh, to be with you tonight. Thanks to World Beyond War, Veterans for Peace, New York chapter. Um, and again, thanks to all the panelists. Um, tonight, as the last speaker, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about resistance. You know, oftentimes I leave talks like this wondering, you know, what do I do next? And when I talk about resistance, there's lots of forms of resistance, as you all know. You know, attending this meeting and sharing the link with your friends is a form of resistance. Supporting groups like World Beyond War, Code Pink, Afghan Diaspora for Equity and Progress, Voices for Creative Nonviolence, uh, Veterans for Peace. You know, these are all groups and, you know, forms of resistance when you're participating and active in them. Um, tonight, I'll talk a little bit about the form of resistance that you know, is best for me. It works best for me. And when I talk about resistance, I'm, I'm really just talking about what I do to help myself sleep at night. Um, but first, I'd like to talk a little bit about why I joined the military, you know, what I saw when I was in the military, uh, and why I became um, a war resistor uh, after really one tour in Afghanistan. I ended up going back to Afghanistan unarmed on my second tour. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I mean, like Danny, um, you know, I was uh, 
I don't know, what's the word? When you see the two planes hit the Twin Towers and you're young and you see all those thousands of people die and you're, you're full of energy and you got a bunch of student loans to pay back and um, you don't want to go work in a cubicle and you've just seen the movie Black Hawk Down and you've grown up you know, in a, in a right-wing Catholic family that believes that the U.S. is a force for freedom and democracy around the world. I mean, signing up for the military was an obvious choice. Um, I wanted to be like those guys in Black Hawk Down. Um, you know, but I had, I kind of had a sense when you, when you sign up for the military, you're less of a, a person and you're, you're more of a piece of equipment. So I wanted to become the most expensive piece of equipment as quickly as possible. And, you know, joining an entry level special forces unit, like the Ranger Battalion was, was the way I, I chose to, um, sign up. You know, I went through about, you know, a few months of training. Training was a lot of food and sleep deprivation. Um, you know, and before I knew it, you know, I found myself in Afghanistan. Um, and I was expecting bullets to be whizzing by my head when I landed in the country. Um, it was a few days uh, after Christmas in 2002 when I landed. And the next morning I woke up uh, to relative quiet. I saw gaping holes in the sides of building in downtown Kabul. Uh, I saw little children pushing carts of, of rotten fruit down the streets uh, of, of the main thoroughfare in, in Kabul. I saw unbelievable amounts of poverty and devastation. You know, Afghanistan was uh, invaded by, uh, was occupied by, the, by the, uh, the Soviets in the late 70s, early 80s. And after that, they were embroiled in a civil war. Then the U.S. began its occupation. occupation. There's no hope for cubicle jobs over there. I mean, it's just poverty. It's pure poverty. Um, and like I said, I signed up hoping to prevent another 9-11, to do my best to make sure that didn't happen again. But after a few missions, you know, where we were sent out, you know, really rooted in, you know, and this wasn't just, uh, you know, a once in a while type thing. Most of the missions we went on were rooted in horrible intelligence. We knew next to, next to nothing about the culture. You know, none of us obviously spoke the language. We had a few interpreters, but we were there just like Danny said, you know, to, to seek revenge for 9-11. We didn't really care who we took revenge on. We just wanted revenge. And I don't think the politicians back home really cared who we were going after. And we often found ourselves as little more than pawns in village disputes. You know, when you live in such a poor country, you know, and someone says, hey, show me where the Taliban is or show me where the terrorists are. So show me the people who, who, who took down those Twin Towers. People are going to point, oh, go, go get that guy over there. And we go in, we land in someone's front yard, storm into their house in the middle of the night, hearing little kids scream, throw a bag over some military age a man and send him off to a place like Guantanamo or, or, or whatever. Then we maybe find out a little bit later, oh, that guy actually owed some rent to a landlord. Um, and, you know, we would have rockets land in our camp. And, uh, you know, Akhtar, you know, he was on the receiving end of those uh, retaliations because we would just call in a military airstrike, a 500 pound bomb. You know, where did that, where did that rocket come from? Or where did that, where, where did, where did it come? I don't know. Maybe that general vicinity over there. And so we would drop a 500 pound bomb in that general vicinity over there. 
you know, some estimates, you know, like, like we said, we don't, we can't count, we're, we're not counting the dead in Afghanistan, but by some estimates, there's as much as 80% of the people that have died since 2001 have been innocent civilians. Um, there's a really uh, great professor, I think, uh, Professor Robert Pate from the University of Chicago. Um, he is a political scientist and in, is the director of the Chicago Project on Security and Terrorism. He noted that between 1980 and 2001, there were about 321 suicide bombs around the world, with only 10% aimed at the U.S. and U.S. interests. And so if we're going to ask these kids to go off and kill and die so a fraction of population can benefit uh, from this, you know, all, while all of us suffer, um, you know, I think these kids should have a, a degree of full disclosure. And I try not to go in there and I don't wag, wag my hand, you know, finger and say, don't join the military, because a lot of these kids just don't have the options. You know, um, and so, you know, this is their way to, for college. Um, and this is a way to get, get their college paid for. Um, and I always like to say, you know, one of the best things you can do to fight U.S. imperialism is advocate for free education. You know, advocate, advocate for free, free health care. One of the best things you can do to fight climate change is challenge U.S. imperialism. You know, U.S. military is the largest polluter on the planet. Um, but anyway, I mean, all is to say is that and I'm running out of time, so I'll just wrap it up here. Um, you know, when kids ask me, you know, is the U.S., you know, is the military like, you know, Call of Duty, the popular first person shooter game? And, you know, I ask them, you know, um, do you hear babies screaming, you know, in Call of Duty? Uh, well, well, not really. Are, are the majority of the people that die in Call of Duty uh, innocent civilians? Like, eh, not really. No, uh, none. <laughs> Um, can you turn off uh, Call of Duty? They're like, yeah, absolutely. It's like, well, you can't turn off the war. And so I'd urge people, if they have the bandwidth, the capacity, um, you know, the feeling, you know, try to get in and talk to these students. You know, you can't support, you can't keep 800 military bases around the world open if there aren't students and young people filling those positions. You can't slaughter hundreds of thousands of people around the world if there aren't young people squeezing the trigger. Um, so, you know, sharing the information you learned in, in this panel, in this discussion, all great things you can, you can do. You know, get in front of young people, all great things you can do. We're out of time. I'd like to thank all of the speakers featured in today's show. I'd like to thank World Beyond War for allowing us to share their audio with you. And I'd also like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, Romero Funes, our assistant producer, and today's audio engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And I know it is the holiday season. For those of you who are marking uh, the Christmas holiday, all the very best to you. We hope, though, that you do remember to stay well and stay safe. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.